Welcome to Persistent and Committed Engagement Practical Strategies for Difficult-to-Reach Clients. My name is Chelsea Sims. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm a lead community mental health trainer with UCLA's uh, UCLA DMH Public Mental Health Partnership. Uh, what we do is we provide professional development training and other ways uh, to receive support and information um, for folks who are providing community mental health services, outreach services, other kinds of um, social support services in LA County. So um, the learning objectives for today are to be able to, by the end of the training, uh, distinguish four persistent engagement strategies that can be used to strengthen rapport with difficult to engage clients. And the wording here is very in intentional, not trying to label clients as difficult. We're describing behavior that we might uh, view as difficult um, and that might be a barrier to us. So keep that in mind as we go throughout today's training. Uh, we also wanna be able to describe three informal engagement methods that can be used during outreach to build a therapeutic uh, alliance. And then finally, illustrate how, when, and why informal engagement strategies are essential in development of the client's treatment plan within at least one current client example. All right. So before I jump in to give you a little background about me, I'm a social worker, licensed clinical social worker now. Um, back in when I was doing direct practice, I worked in a variety of settings um, and really had to adapt the way I approached engagement and uh, being assertive in my engagement, being persistent and committed and all of that. I worked in the prison system, which was a highly controlled environment, as you can imagine, or maybe I've experienced with. And from there, I went and worked in the community doing outreach and wraparound services to folks who had been unhoused and were then marginally housed at risk for eviction. And this was in San Francisco. So different landscape than Los Angeles, but very similar population. Um, and through that transition, I learned that I had a lot to learn about engaging folks who are um, have a, a lot of different challenges that they're experiencing that might make it more difficult for me as the outreach provider to, um, to find uh, my clients to uh, develop trust and rapport. And so this topic is very meaningful for me because uh, I think it's a great opportunity for both me to share some information backed by research and evidence, some personal um, stories from my time in direct service, but also to ask you all to share in the chat out loud your strategies because you are doing this work right now and I'm sure you have a million different strategies that are um, that you're enacting that would be helpful for everyone in the room to know today. So I hope that we can both, um, that I can both provide some helpful information and also elicit some information from you all to share with each other because I've learned the most from my coworkers as I'm sure you can relate to. So first let's kind of situate ourselves and excuse me as my cat tries to interrupt our training today. Um, I am working from home, so please excuse any cat interruption. Um, so what, what are we looking at here? We're looking at the socio-ecological model 
Um, this was developed by a psychologist in the 70s, and it was originally developed to describe the dynamic interrelations among various personal and environmental factors that impact child development. It's now used as a model for understanding the whole range of factors that affect mental health and well-being, as well as it's a model for highlighting um, the interactions between the range of factors impacting health. And the, so the individual here is positioned within these array of factors. So we have the inter individual leading into interpersonal, leading into organizational, community, and law and policy. Some of you may have learned about microsystems, mesosystems, exosystems, macrosystems. Some people, some disciplines may use a four-level model. These are all just different ways to express the same concepts. In its simplest form, one thing affects another, and an intervention at any of these levels will have impacts on the others. Because as you know, we don't work with people in a vacuum, um, but we work within all these different systems that are dynamic and changing, and also sometimes immutable or stuck in ways that undermine what we're doing with the individual. I'm sure many of you can relate, working with clients, working with an individual, and dealing with laws and policies that are you can see are harmful, dealing with even maybe interpersonal issues in an individual's experience that might be impacting their well-being and mental health. Um, and so we just wanna consider where we're at and how we can affect different levels of this model to be, uh, uh, to be in best service to our clients. So the first thing I wanna talk about is what I'm, I'm calling a collaborative handoff. So, um, let me know in the chat if you've ever uh, been involved in a collaborative handoff, and this might be described as a warm handoff. Um, the definition here, uh, and I see something in the chat, I'll read that in just a moment. The definition here for a collaborative handoff in includes formal face-to-face -face meeting of two teams, providers, and shared client. So for instance, you're a social worker and you are um, a very like uh, typical example might be if you are a social worker working in like a primary care practice, okay? Pr imagine that you work in this system and you're the primary care provider sees that a client has a need. And so that PCP meets with you and the client to introduce you to the client. So everyone's involved in the meeting. Um, you're facilitating social interaction that may reduce stigma associated with mental health care. So we know a lot of folks face a lot of stigma based on their identities, based on um, their behaviors, based on their um, history of trauma, uh, history of other, you know, um, ongoing trauma, racial trauma, um, historical trauma, there's a lot that might be happening that can inhibit someone's ability to uh, obtain services that are effective. Let's see what we've got going on in the chat. Thanks so much for participating. You're saying the strategies that I usually use with working with difficult clients are motivational interviewing skills. Hey, that's a uh, We'll be talking about that in a little bit. Harm reduction, amazing. 
And this helps with the rapport building stages. I completely agree. Harm reduction, where we're approaching someone non-judgmentally and helping them reduce harm from potentially risky behaviors is so much more, um, so much easier for someone to receive than telling them, don't do that, right? So I appreciate that, all that creativity you're using. Um, oh, great, so you have experience doing a warm handoff. We did a phone conference for the warm handoff. So, you know, we can define it as face-to-face, -face, but also a phone conference where the client and the two providers, two or more providers are involved certainly counts, especially when we are doing a lot more virtual than we used to. This is the best approach as the client can feel supportive and not just meeting a stranger. And this helps them understand the treatment team approach. Exactly, right? So you get to introduce folks to the people that will be helping them in a new capacity, right? If you're the one initiating this collaborative or warm handoff. Um, uh, some additional notes, when we're doing this, when we have everyone in the room together, the consumer, the client the, can have more input in what clinical and social information is discussed. So when you're doing a collaborative handoff, uh, you want to make sure that our, your client's prepared for this interaction and they uh, feel empowered to share what is they would like to and kind of um, steer the agenda. Um, this contributes to relational continuity through multidisciplinary therapeutic alliance. Yeah, so uh, in the comments, in the chat, you were mentioning uh, having a treatment team approach. Many folks I'm, I'm sure attending today might work with a variety of disciplines within your organization. And so being able to facilitate this collaborative handoff where maybe you're not even handing off the client, but you will both be working with the client uh, fostering that connection can really uh, contribute, like Ralph was saying in the chat, to uh, taking away that stranger kind of uh, view of the new provider and making, um, ensuring that our clients have the best chance of feeling comfortable. So unfortunately, collaborative handoffs are not always possible within the systems we work in. If we think back to the socio-ecological model, we don't always have this possibility. Sometimes we receive a referral and we're unable to contact the referring party for some reason. Um, or, uh, you know, we might not be able to get a hold of the new provider before our client's appointment. Something could disrupt, but that doesn't mean we have to completely give up. We can kind of using a harm reduction approach, try to find a different way to um, connect our client to this new provider. So if we look at this kind of arrow going from a cold handoff to a warm handoff, we see facts with limited collateral info. How many of us have received this kind of information? Just a referral, we don't know who wrote it, some information. It's really on us to start fresh from the beginning to meet and get to know and develop rapport with our clients. Um, then we have provider doesn't return your calls. So you're trying to make this happen and the calls are not getting returned. So you're not getting you're not getting to the place where you can connect your client with the provider directly. Um, and then as we get warmer, uh, the provider returns calls, you're able to schedule something, both providers are communicating effectively, and the providers collaborate with client support system. We're getting 
all the way to a warmest, the warmest handoff we can do. All right. And so I'm wondering from the from you all, what experiences have you had? Do you think you've had mostly cold handoffs, mostly warm handoffs? What tends to be the way that you either get clients or connect clients with others? A mix of both. Yeah, often we do a mix of both. Most often cold handoff. Appreciate your transparency, right? It's we have a lot to do. Sometimes uh, oftentimes the warm handoff is impossible due to time constraints, communication mix-ups, and trying to get towards the warm handoff is, you know, the, um, is the goal, right? Uh, so if you are noticing that you are working mostly off of cold handoffs, maybe think of, consider different ways you can warm those handoffs a little bit by either, um, if you're on the receiving end, trying to connect with the person who wrote the referral, um, or if you are on the, um, if you're the provider who is connecting your client with someone else, really trying to get involved in that process a little bit more. Recently have been warm, awesome, great. Okay, and so we're talking about engagement here today. So I would love to know from you all, what does engagement mean to you? When you are thinking about engaging with a client, what is that? What do, what do you consider engagement to be? Actively and consistently interacting. I love that. So actively, like being intentional and, you know, kind of like action is involved and with consistency, really enhances engagement. I love that. Connecting, yes, engagement. It's about connecting human to human with our clients and um, letting them know what we can do for them and that uh, developing trust, rapport, active listening, yes, and communicating. So really honing in on what our clients' needs are and trying to really focus on the client's perspective. It's really helpful um, in engagement, gets you far. Participating, even if it's just being there present in the room. Totally. There's been many times when I have like accompanied a client somewhere and maybe I, they don't need me to say anything, but me being there is helpful um, and a way of engaging just with our physicality, I suppose. A beginning to establishing a working relationship. Yeah, I would say it's a beginning for sure. And then it's ongoing, right? We, we continue to learn and grow in our own work, but also uh, about our clients. We learn more and more about them, what works for them, what doesn't work for them. Um, we probably, we might make mistakes and have a rupture and need to repair and really work on our engagement then. So it's certainly a beginning and ongoing. Awesome. I think uh, persistence and consistency are huge. Um, you know, a lot of clients initially might not feel very comfortable when we come up to them, right? It's kind of breaking through uh, that maybe boundary that they have uh, created based on very valid experience. And it's up to us to convince people that we're trustworthy and can be helpful and useful to them and not just someone else who might be telling them what to do or telling them how we think they should live. 
All right. So um, I mentioned in our learning objectives that there are formal and informal engagement strategies. So would love to hear from you all. What do you think are some formal engagement strategies you might um, you already are doing um, that might kind of work into your role, might work into documentation, perhaps? Or alternatively, can you think of informal engagement strategies you've, you've used before that maybe are a little bit outside of kind of your, um, your set order of operations in your role? Anybody have any ideas? Team meetings with client and team. Yes, I would say that's a formal engagement strategy. And then reward system or token. Right, that might be an informal engagement strategy. Awesome, here's some more. Okay, so for formal, on the left, we've got treatment plan development, team decision-making, medication management, utilization of social support, and linkage with a primary care provider. Um, so these are kind of formalized processes often in our work. Um, we have done them over and over again, treatment plans, working with our, uh, our multidisciplinary team to uh, make decisions, working with our clients and other providers to come to share decision-making with them, um, working with uh, prescribers for medication management, um, helping our clients get more uh, access, more um, just strengthening social support, and of course, linkage with a primary care provider. That might be formal uh, way to, that you, that engagement impacts your work with a client. Um, so you would reflect your engagement in the treatment plan and in these other scenarios. Um, informal, that maybe aren't so part of your uh kind of go-to task list in your mind, maybe in accepting clients as they are, kind of trying to really uh, be this non-judgmental, as non-judgmental as we can be, and meeting our clients where they're at. Um, flexibility in care. So maybe as we're engaging with a client, we need to be more flexible than we may have initially thought when we started doing this kind of work. But flexibility is incredibly important. Um, and using those active listening skills in, when we're working with our clients can help us be more flexible to uh, really redirect our conversations and our engagement to be client-centered, to be really uh, focused on creating a space for creativity in approaching problems. Um, and we wanna be open. Uh, other informal engagement might look like humanizing experiences where we're reflecting humanity back to our clients. Maybe it's not something you have on a list of things to do, um, but it is something that we do quite often that can be very effective um, when a lot of clients that we've worked with have experience the opposite, where they don't feel that they're being treated as a fellow human being. 
because of the stigma they might face because of mental, mental illness, because of being unhoused, because of substance use challenges, all these things. Reflecting someone's humanity is perhaps informal, but incredibly important aspect of engagement. Empowerment. Um, I used to think that you give power to others like, oh, yes, I as a social worker, I will empower my clients to be, uh, you know, empowered, uh, for lack of a better phrase. But really, we don't give power. We help our clients empower themselves, right? We help them um, identify and elicit their own power within. It's not ours to give to them. It's ours to help find, really. Um, and so I think empowerment is a huge part of our work. Clear communication, being really direct um, and clear about what we are going to do, what the options are, when we'll show up next can, is really important. And then reward system, uh, as Kaylee said, that might be an informal engagement strategy uh, that might have to do with um, providing some sort of reward for consistent um, work together, right? Could be a cup of coffee, um, something like that. So that'd be another informal, maybe not written into any protocol, but these are things that we do in this work because there's so many different ways to engage with our clients. We want to be as um, we want to be as person-centered as possible. So here are some persistent engagement strategies. Um, and persistence here is, is a theme, right? We persistent, we don't give up. Some of you might be on FSP teams with where the common phrase of we do whatever it takes might be something that you, you, um, you have heard or you identify with. It's all about persistence and balancing that with taking care of ourselves, right? Um, but we're gonna talk about the persistence part right now. So how do we persist? One thing that we can do is altering team expectations. So that might have to do with your entire team. It might have to do with your own expectations. So this might be, I think about when I interviewed for my outreach position, I asked what was, um, I forget what my question was. It was something like, what is uh, the biggest challenge in this job? Um, and I remember my supervisor, and it stuck with me forever, and I will never forget it, said that she had to change her definition of success. She had to change what her definition of success looked like because when she was working with clients who um, were in very vulnerable positions, um, having her old idea of what success meant didn't uh, honor the successes that were taking place. So, you know, you might have, especially if you're new in the field, you might have really big dreams for your clients and you want them to be able to get from, you know, A to Z, right? And once you do this job for a while, you realize that you are probably not going to be present for anyone's A to Z transformation. Not everyone makes that whole transformation anyway, and that's perfectly fine. Um, we're just here for a little bit of it. Maybe we're there for like B through F. Maybe we're there from like Q through R. Uh, forgetting my alphabet right now, but you, I think you hear what I'm saying. So um, what we wanna do is alter our 
our expectations for ourselves of what success is. And this can help us identify when small successes are happening. And that's what helps change happen anyway, right? If you have any training and motivational interviewing, um, you may know that, um, that uh, motivation builds, uh, motivation can build kind of gradually and um, recovery, uh, success, uh, transformation also occurs extremely gradually. And especially when clients are dealing with all these overlapping systems, all these barriers, change doesn't happen as fast as any of us would prefer, right? Um, so really thinking into that can help us be creative and really tap into our strengths focused um, lens so that we see, okay, my client, you know, this month showed up two times out of four when we said we were gonna meet, whereas last month they only showed up one time or zero times, right? We wanna be able to have expectations that are in line with where our clients are at, meeting them where they're at, right? Another one might be highlighting client rights. So being able to um, help our clients understand what their rights are, what their strengths are, um, and promoting their ability to self-advocate and advocating for them as well when warranted. Another persistent engagement strategy is discovering new meetings of engagement. So engagement can look like having a conversation. It can look like playing a game with your client. It could look like listening to music together. Um, it can really look different depending on what's going on and what's needed. And then intensifying outreach. Um, so perhaps changing the way you're doing outreach, uh, outreaching more often, coming up with different plans for where to meet with clients, depending on um, what their needs are, what works for them. Also maybe thinking about like what they might be doing. Um, I had a lot of clients who use substances and depending on the substances, I would show up at a different time of day, you know? So for clients who were alcohol dependent, I would show up in the morning um, because that was the time where perhaps I could be helpful if they were in any sort of risky situation from um, going through alcohol withdrawal, but also they were more um, able to engage with me at that time. You know, if I went back in the afternoon when they were inebri inebriated, it would be more difficult to accomplish things and move our relationship forward to meet their needs. Um, and, you know, similarly or oppositely, if I had a client who was a methamphetamine user, I might wait until afternoon to go outreach them because they sleep very heavily all morning or something, right? So we want to intensify outreach, which can also look like making it more specific to what our clients' needs are. So there's been some research done on how our engagement strategies affect our clients. So we know from our own experience, right? But they've studied this um, and some of these things are not surprising at all. Um, and so just to reiterate that we're really wanting to meet our clients where they are. Um, and this means that we do these things, literally meet them where they're at, 
So if you do outreach, then you're doing this, you're meeting them where they live, where they would like to meet, where they're staying, um, you're meeting them in their community, okay? So that's really helpful for a lot of folks. Um, you see the top right bubble, client directed treatment. So we're putting our clients in the driver's seat. Um, they are more likely to engage with us if we are listening to them and valuing their needs and their expertise of their own lives. Um, again, we see acknowledge their expertise. So we have not lived a whole life of our clients. Um, we haven't lived their whole life. We're witnessing a short period of their entire journey. And so we've got to acknowledge that their expertise over their lives, over, you know, they might know about resources we don't know about, their community, um, their uh, different identities, their uh, religious or spiritual affiliations, you know, we just, we don't know what we don't know. So acknowledging our clients' expertise, super helpful to clients, makes them feel respected and um, trusted to, which makes them feel more open to sharing. And then unconditional positive support. This has also been described as unconditional positive regard. And I find this, uh, this little phrase so helpful um, because that's the goal that we want to show to our clients is this unconditional positive regard that we know that there's a lot going on in a client's life that is impacting how they're showing up with us on any given day. So we don't know, like I said before, what we don't know. And so if we can have this unassuming, non-judgmental, unconditional positive regard, uh, clients really feel cared for when we do that. And that makes engagement easier. All right. So now we have some practical considerations for engagement. So if um, if you are engaging with folks out in the community, location is hugely important. Um, when we think about location, we think about where we're meeting our clients. We want to consider safety for our clients, for ourselves. We want to consider whether confidentiality is possible at that location. Um, and we may also want to pre-plan our route to get there, um, depending on where it is, how we're getting there, kind of what area we work in. If you're on foot, if you're in a car, if you're taking public transportation, um, lots of things go into this. Um, so question for you uh, regarding location. So if you are tasked to meet with a client um, and that client does not have a phone. You've met before, but um, so they know you, but they don't have a phone. How do you think you could talk about location, for instance, in order to ensure or increase the chance of being able to meet with them? Because this happens a lot, right? People lose their phones. The phone get cut, gets cut off, doesn't have money on it. It gets stolen. They've sold their phone. What can you do if a client doesn't have a phone? If you know their address or workplace, you can meet them there instead of calling. I will get three of their favorite locations, especially if they are homeless. Fabulous. Yes. Great. So, you know, you might 
in your first meeting, they don't have a phone. So you figure out, okay, if you can give me your work or home address, where would you prefer we meet? And I'll meet you there at this time. Three locations. So figuring out um, where maybe you could come up with a consistent meeting spot or time, right? Um, another suggestion, make suggestion on a local area to meet, have a consistent time and day, set a time and day every week for meeting at a location, right? So you all are doing this already, right? Um, you're going to want to figure out a way to uh, pre-plan your meeting or have some contingencies in place. Oh, if I come to see you and you're not here, are there other places I can look? Is that okay with you? Um, or I'm going to come by on Thursday at 3 p.m. Uh, every week. If there's a different time, like, does that time work? Is this location good? Stuff like that. Uh, if it's a situation, another chat comment, if there's a situation where they just don't have one rather than losing it, I have been assisting them with getting an Obama phone through the Lifeline program, which is completely free for them. And they may not know how to access that resource on their own. Yes, great. I've connected so many clients with those phones, super helpful. Um, they have little kiosks uh, set up in San Francisco where I worked, where we could just do it while we're walking to an appointment or something. So um, let me know what it's like in LA. Do you have to reach out to Lifeline or do they have kind of hubs around? Would love to know. And I'm sure colleagues would too. But yeah, giving our client a phone. Why not try that, right? Um, you can do it online. Awesome. And there are tons of hubs outside of DPSS offices. Great. Thanks so much. All right, so then time of day, I had talked about this a little bit before, um, that consider substance use. Uh, note there. So we want to base our time of day for outreach on our client preference, most of all. Um, and the, we might also consider what is listed in the referral. Say we got a cold handoff and we got a referral with um, information about where our clients behaviors, activities, things like that might give us a little bit of an idea of what the time of day would be. And again, consider substance use and how that might affect a client's ability to be, uh, to participate in their treatment, really. Um, I have worked with clients who are under the influence of substances. I don't think that's, for me, a hard uh, boundary, but I have adapted the way I will approach folks so that perhaps the substances aren't as on board uh, when we meet so that we have a better chance of getting stuff done. And then dress code. I mean, it's not a dress code, right? It's not a, a law, but uh, we want to be comfortable not worrying about our clothing. Um, this can be, uh, this can feel different depending on who you are and your identities. Um, Folks who, you know, might uh, identify on the more feminine side of the gender spectrum might want to dress in a way that feels more comfortable, um, more casual, depending on their experience, being in the community and how you feel. Um, this is very personal, right? I don't want to give anybody any rules for how to dress. Um, but I think it's something to consider when you're preparing yourself for engage engagement in the community. What are you going to wear? What shoes are you going to wear? Um, do you have enough layers depending on the weather? I know there's been some wild weather lately. Um, 
how are you going to be maybe even consider how you might be viewed by the community there you know if you show up doing outreach in a three-piece suit you might not be received the same way as if you're wearing jeans and a sweatshirt right so consider those things also um and then an outreach partner this can be so helpful uh to have a partner with you uh perhaps a team member or I've, I've outreached clients with like a nurse practitioner, a psychiatric nurse practitioner before when I was talking to a client about medication. Um, I've reached out with adult protective services if they had to have an APS referral to kind of make that a warm handoff. Um, but I've also gone out with a supervisor where I had a lot of concern about what was going on for the client. I wanted some backup. Um, when we're doing this, we want to be sure, especially if we're working with a provider from a different organization, that we have a release of information on file for our client for everyone that we would be outreaching with. Um, so that can be really helpful. And I see uh, in the chat, safety in numbers. Yeah, um, the team I was on, we outreached solo, and I think that was not the best approach. Um, I know that FSP teams often outreach in uh, teams, and I think it can be so helpful, uh, both for your personal sense of safety and also uh, a kind of a burnout prevention technique so that not you're not feeling all of the weight of the uh, of the work to be done for the client. And you can kind of spread that a little bit amongst your team so that not anyone feels too uh, overwhelmed, right? All right, so continuing on the practical considerations, this I would love to hear from you because always getting amazing ideas. Um, what do you bring with you when you're out in the community outreaching your clients? Uh, here's some suggestions just from what I've done in the past and some of my colleagues who I worked on this developing this training with, but I'm curious. Anything missing that you are sure to bring with you? I see if homeless, a hygiene pack and water for them. Would love to know what, what's in a hygiene pack. Oh, a sewing kit. What a brilliant thing to have. I never thought of that. Because that would have like safety pins in it. And a tent repair kit. Beautiful. That's so important. Oh my gosh. Wonderful ideas. I'll read mine and continue to, oh, I'm sure. Yeah, great rapport builder. You, you're helping your client repair their tent. I mean, that's so wonderful. I would, I can't imagine how much um, rapport is being built in that moment. Toothbrush, toothpaste, hand sanitizer, band-aids, deodorant, and body wipes. Awesome. So are these, and just out of curiosity, are these to give to clients or for yourself? I see socks as well to give, awesome, both to give. So lots of lots of uh, supplies to distribute, so great. Um, I would often have like business cards to share with other providers that I'm working with. Um, so if I'm accompanying a client to an appointment, I can just hand over my business card. Um, PPE, of course, we think about this all the time now. Um, gloves, masks, shoe covers, hand sanitizer, particularly if you have a client who might have um, 
well, when I worked in, I worked in supportive housing and, you know, worked with clients who had an active bed bug infestation. So used a lot of PPE for that. It made me feel a lot safer, a lot more comfortable uh, engaging, um, despite the, you know, the challenges of the environment. Sanitary pads for female clients. Yes. Awesome. I love it. Condoms too. This list needs to be so much longer. You all have the best suggestions. I've got snacks, beverages, a clipboard, paper pens, um, activities for clients. Uh, some that have been really useful were like a word search booklet, coloring books, um, just general little paperbacks, magazines, headphones for listening to music, a small battery operated or foldable fan can be really helpful in the summer. Um, Narcan, if you, uh, if you, if it's available and you've had training in dispensing it, highly recommend Narcan. Um, we have an info session on that if you're interested. Um, calendar to give away. Yes, I've, give, I've given so many clients calendars and you can use the calendar also as an engagement tool. Like, oh, let's put on the calendar when we're going to meet next and when this doctor appointment is. It's like both, um, uh, like a gift because, you know, having a calendar is nice. And then also a way to uh, like teach practice skills and then um, also hopefully enhance like uh, your client's ability to attend uh, appointments and uh, increase the likelihood that you get, they meet up with you at the time that you stated. I love that. Any other suggestions before we move to the next slide? because these are amazing. I would love to hear more. So these points come from a uh, training that was done by an FFP provider. I can't remember actually if he's FFP or home. Um, Anthony Ruffin uh, did, uh, has done a lot of outreach, very uh, expert, has a lot of expertise in assertive outreach and engaging with folks who maybe a lot of other people have struggled to engage with. And um, in one of his trainings that we have available actually on our website, um, he talked about assessing the environment. So when we're outreaching our clients in their community, um, doing street outreach, we really want to pay attention to what's going on around the environment, not just from a like danger, what could be happening, but also like what is what is going on here? Not not looking necessarily for danger or um, anything specific, but being open to what is this environment doing for our clients? What might be the barriers? Being really like holistic, I suppose, in our approach to looking at it. So some questions you might ask yourself. Um, and your client are, why is your client living here in this spot, in this area? And this could go for someone who's housed and it could go for someone who's unhoused and is staying in a certain area in an encampment or elsewhere. Why, you know, what's what brought them here? Um, what might help uh, elucidate this information is what is important to them in their surroundings? Is there something nearby that they want to have access to? Um, are there any resources that are nearby that perhaps helps to um, 
how do I want to say this, helps to explain why they're here. Um, not that we're looking for justification. We're just looking for what, what is going on in the environment. Um, what community are they a part of currently? Uh, this could be anything from family, friends, um, peers. This could be uh, have to do with an identity, um, religion, anything like that. What community are they? Do they consider themselves a part of currently? And you know, we could say what communities because you know there might be multiple. Um, and where's the safety? How safe do they feel here? Uh, it might not be a yes or no question. Like where are there opportunities to increase safety, maybe reduce harm um, that have to do with the environment? Like uh, the tent uh, patch kit, right? If someone is in a tent that has a hole in it and there's a bunch of rain, that's not safe, right? Because that could impact their wellness, uh, could make them sick um, and all these things. So we wanna think of safety, not just as like uh, people necessarily, but uh, environmental factors too. Um, another thing about in assessing the environment, how do they maintain their quality of life? What makes life worth living for them um, in this environment? What is uh, helping? Um, so those are just, um, ways to assess the environment. Um, would love to hear from you all if you have any thoughts on this. Are, have you ever kind of noticed, oh, this, yeah, this area is helpful for my client because it's on the bus line that goes right to their, where their kids are, or, um, you know, they're able to, like one of my clients, lived in an SRO and he was able to, I mean, I, I don't wanna say this casually, but he was able to uh, purchase drugs right outside. You know, that was something that was important to him and made him feel safe because of his dependence. Um, and also was something to consider that I knew about the environment, right? Um, but also honoring like what, how that can be useful to a client at the same time, potentially creating risk. It's good to be able to see all sides of the environment uh, that might be impacting our engagement. All right, so we've talked kind of the practicalities. We've talked about like tangible things we can bring with us, um, things to consider in working with other providers that are working with our clients. Now let's talk about this kind of like individual engagement with our clients. We want to build a therapeutic relationship, right? We want it to be helpful. We want our clients to feel heard and understood. Um, and we want to be able to identify a direction for that our clients want to go and support them in that journey. When we're doing that, we want to use caution and discretion in making promises, guarantees, or other concrete statements. So when I'm working, and this um, comes from the work of a former colleague, David Hainick, who uh, did a whole training on this, um, but we want to not overpromise. Um, you know, the shortcut way I think about it, and I like to think about things in a shortcut way. So if your brain works that way too, hopefully it's helpful. But I think, okay, when I'm in my in my role, I am 
striving to do this more than that. I'm striving to under promise and over deliver more than I am striving to over promise and under deliver uh, because it can feel really helpful in the moment to be like, yes, I will give this, we'll make this happen. And, you know, in the short term interaction with our client, that might feel really positive. However, if all of those things do not happen, the long-term impact on the therapeutic relationship might be, oh, well, Chelsea talks big game, but she doesn't connect me to anything or never follows up. Or I, I don't know, she said this big idea, but I don't know if it's going to happen. So when we're trying to connect folks to uh, resources, services, different ways of approaching situations, anything, we want to be cautious and only um, make promises when we know, we know we can keep them. And in general, just be a little bit uh, more focused, not so much on what we're telling our clients we're going to do, but in following through on as much as we can. Um, and so maybe hedging how much we promise we can do can be helpful um, sometimes. We also want to be transparent with our actions, thoughts, and feelings as necessary and appropriate. You know, in an ideal, I don't know if it's an ideal world, but we, we don't want to be transparent all the time. For instance, if we are feeling overwhelmed by something happening with our client and it is causing us to feel angry at our client, this happens sometimes because of our own stuff, right? Um, we might just be triggered because of a similar situation before. We might have some vicarious trauma we've, we've experienced in this work that might make us feel very distressed when we're worried about our clients. Um, and so what we want to do is try to figure out the uh, where our kind of distress ends and where the actual issue with our client begins and really keep it in that uh, arena, okay? So this means that if you're feeling flooded with emotion that is making the engagement difficult, we need to kind of figure out how to like take care of ourselves and emotionally regulate before we are... Um, like giving instructions or sharing our thoughts and feelings. Um, if we can do that, then it makes it a lot easier to be transparent with the thoughts and feelings that are happening that are appropriate, right? Um, if we notice that if our client is going through something and we can validate their feelings and tell them how we feel as well, that can be really helpful. Um, if our client is sharing a perception and we share a different version of that perception that can help them maybe get out of a place that they're stuck, that can be helpful. But if we're telling them, you're annoying me, not so helpful for engagement, right? We wanna, we don't need to share that information with our clients. We can share that outside and deal with our own distress in the moment. Um, and then finally, we wanna respect personal space and boundaries. Boundaries, super important when in engagement both our own and our clients. Respecting both is the uh, ultimate goal. Um, and this can do with a variety of different things. I remember when I first heard the word boundaries, very confusing. What does that mean? Um, 
but we want to make sure we understand both our clients' needs and their preferences and try to meet them as much as possible. And if we're not able to, clearly explain why and validate that, you know, it might be upsetting that we're not able to. Um, personal space is huge. We want to, you know, grant people personal space and um, maybe even establish some boundaries around our own. Um, I know we all had to do a lot of this at the beginning of COVID with, you know, trying to keep social distancing while doing this work, extremely challenging. I found it extremely challenging, not sure about others, um, but uh, these can really build on the therapeutic relationship because if you're respecting uh, their boundaries and you're being clear with your boundaries, uh, you both know what the limits are. There's more understanding and therefore more possibility to engage about what the client is needing. And I mentioned this at the beginning a little bit, hinted at it, I suppose. I was talking about um, the way that we talk about clients. So uh, for instance, the name of this training is uh, difficult to reach clients, not necessarily calling them difficult clients, because then you're kind of describing a person as difficult and that's a whole label we're putting on them. Instead of if we say difficult to reach, we're talking, oh, they're there's something about engaging with them that is difficult, something about their behavior that's making that difficult to do versus kind of like a shortcut of this person is just difficult. Sometimes we might assume we know what that means if another provider says that, um, but we want to be specific and we want to be uh, person-centered and avoid labeling as much as possible. Um, other ways to hone in on language that can help build the therapeutic relationship is to avoid clinical jargon. Um, and I try to do that as much as possible um, in trainings as well, because clinical jargon, super helpful when you're in school, uh, can be harmful too, difficult to understand, I think. But also just, we want it to be approachable. We want our clients to feel understood. We don't want them to feel pathologized, right? So um, keeping it real in our language is very helpful. Uh, label emotions over scaling them. So helping our clients identify what the emotion is happening uh, versus you know having them rate on a scale of one to 10. Um, can be more helpful in really getting an understanding of what the client's going through and help the client develop understanding too in that skill of labeling emotion. Um, it can be helpful, a way to uh, take a little bit of space from the emotion uh, in order to encourage self-regulation. Um, we also want to know our client's history. Um, and so what we can do is how do we find out a client's history? Do you think what's the best way to get that? There's a question to the audience. What helps you understand a client's history? Okay. Help them tell their story. Beautiful. Yeah. So eliciting their story from them to understand the history, uh, taking the position of the learner. I love that. Yeah. So really putting them in the, in the expert role and we're the learner. We're here to learn about their vast human experience that we can't possibly know until they tell us. And then case notes. Yeah, if our client, you know, some clients I've had were not very verbal. Um, and so 
some of the history I had to find out from case notes uh, because they were unable to tell me. Um, it's not the ideal scenario, but that's part of meeting my client where they were at the time too. Uh, because if someone is ex experiencing severe psychosis, it can be really difficult to uh, describe their story in a way that we can understand, right? Um, understand how their history impacts their current quality of life. Yes, so taking into consideration their history and how it's showing up today, right? Maybe childhood experiences impact the behavior that they're engaging in today. Maybe when they were children, it was helpful and now it's not so helpful. Um, or history can also impact what a person values, what is important to them, what, um, you know, what they are going, like what would be the, be the best thing to reconnect to, to improve their quality of life right now, right? Um, so yeah, I think, the best way to know our client's history is by asking them and then also gathering intel as we need to. We want, so in the fourth label there, we have what is the focus of their thought? Um, and so we wanna really pay attention when our clients are speaking with us and try to identify what's, what's going on there um, and in order to validate and acknowledge their reality. Um, we don't wanna, we don't wanna, uh, for instance, like, we don't wanna deny or ignore or invalidate uh, someone's, the emotions behind an experience or their thoughts. If you, there are certain scenarios where this can be tricky. So if someone, for instance, is experiencing delusions, right? That can be really challenging for engagement, right? Because you don't want to, you want to be client-centered, so you don't want to disagree with the delusion, but you don't want to agree with the delusion because that's not being authentic, right? And it's not helping them distinguish between reality either. So it kind of feels like you're between a rock and a hard place. And in those situations, um, we want to validate the emotions and not necessarily like the thoughts or the um, the actual literal uh, meaning of their thought in that moment. So um, validating the emotions, that must be really scary to have that thought that everyone is out to get me, the CA is watching me, something like that. Um, that can be validating without endorsing, not, I don't want to use the word endorsing, but without, um, without like uh, adding to the delusion, you know, giving them more evidence for the delusion because we're pretending to believe it. We don't want to do that, but we do want to validate the emotions because that would be really scary if we were in their situation, right? And then finally, what did they want to tell you about? This is all about being person-centered um, and honoring that our clients are the experts on both their needs and their preferences. So do they want, what do they want to tell you about? Listen to that. We want to, we want to, steer the ship towards them as much as possible, or we want them to be steering the ship really, but we want to put them in the driver's seat, right? What is important to them to know, uh, for you to know about? So uh, now we get into some motivational interviewing skills here for active listening, reflective listening, excuse me, uh, a form of active listening, I would say. 
Uh, so you all might be uh, familiar. And if you're not, then here's a tiny primer on motivational interviewing uh, skill of reflective listening, which is uh, this acronym ORS, like you're paddling with some ORS. And that stands for open-ended questions, affirm, affirm or affirmations, reflect, reflections, and summarize or summaries. Um, I'm used to saying them in different ways, I suppose. Sorry to trip over those words, but um, these are ways to engage with our clients that uh, help them help the con the conversation continue to move forward. So. Um, Anyone with knowledge of these would love to hear your explanation for any part of this. Um, for open-ended questions, these are questions where you are, it's not a yes or no question. And it's also not a question that has like a distinct short answer. So for instance, um, are you happy? <laughs> like a yes or no question, right? I mean, it could, someone could elaborate, but you don't have to because it's a yes or no question, really. Um, or when did you last have alcohol? That's not an open-ended question. That's like last Thursday, right? It's a very short answer. Open-ended are more of the what, how, uh, why questions. Who, what, where, when, how? I can't. Anyway, these are the questions that open up lots of responses. Um, so how do you feel about your drinking lately is a more open-ended question versus when did you last drink? Your client is more likely to give you more information when you're asking open-ended questions. I love this example. What do your depressive symptoms look like for you? Right? Yeah. It's not like they're going to say yes or no, or they might say bad or something, right? But it's the, you're more inspired to uh, talk more when someone asks a question this way. Perfect example. Affirmations are, so open-ended questions are a great uh, way to get a lot, get your clients talking. Affirmations are basically just compliments. We're letting our clients know that we see their efforts, we see their strengths, we see their successes, and we're affirming uh, what they're doing. Um, so this might look like that was a really challenging situation that you got through. You're kind of affirming that they were able to get through this challenging situation. Um, that took a lot of courage for you to ask that question to your psychiatrist, right? We're kind of helping our clients see that we see, well, we're helping them see it if they don't, and then helping them know that we see that they have a lot of strengths and have reasons for doing things. Reflections are pretty much just paraphrasing what a client said back to them to let them know that you're listening and you understand and also provide an opportunity for them to correct you because maybe you didn't, you misunderstood. So when you reflect something back to someone, they might fill you in with more information. They might give you different information or they might be like, exactly, you know? And that's really, you know, whenever we feel heard, feels really, um, empowering. So, and then summaries, this, these occur kind of like throughout and especially at the end of a conversation that you might have if you're using the motivational interviewing style. Um, and this is just basically a 
you can put a bunch of reflections and affirmations um, about your entire conversation into a summary, um, both to do the same thing, uh, affirm our clients, um, let them know that we've been listening and all that, but also help them kind of externalize everything they've said and have a little bit of order and organization. So we're helping just uh, present them back with what they've said, but maybe in a way that they can think about it in a deeper or different way. Um, so those are ORs. Uh, let me know if you have any questions or um, examples, would love to hear, of using ORs with your clients. Like I love that suggestion in the chat. What do your depressive symptoms look like for you? Any other open-ended questions that you have used with your clients um, or instances where a reflection back worked? Have you tried any of this or have ideas of how you might use reflective listening from motivational interviewing uh, to enhance your engagement? Ooh, beautiful. What I heard you say was, when you say what they said, is that correct? Lovely. I love that you added that. Is that correct? That's often uh, what we put at the end of a summary, especially. Because um, then you're letting, you're, you're also humbling yourself a little bit. Like I might not have heard everything or I might be misinterpreting. And that is, helps to, with the power imbalance inherent to working in a helping profession, right? Where we know way more about our clients than they know about us. We have kind of more power in the dynamic, whether we want it or not, we just do by the virtue of our role. And so being able to um, let our clients be the uh, expert in helping us understand and correcting our, our misunderstandings um, can be is super powerful. Affirming the client's commitment to trying to create change is always a big one for me. That's great. So affirming the client's commitment to trying to create change. So maybe they've had, it's not always easy and maybe they have missteps here and there, um, but their commitment to trying to create change, you can affirm. It's beautiful. I love that. Um, because, you know, if any of us have tried to change in our own lives, it is hard. And sometimes the progress is doesn't, you can't feel it. You don't sense it. So having someone else reflect that back would be so, it would just feel really good. Like you see my journey, you see that I'm committed to this, even if it doesn't always work out. In substance use disorder, I usually ask them why they're holding onto this behavior and what has this behavior done to you? So really asking them to help you understand what the positive has been, well, maybe not, I'm not sure, maybe I'm making an assumption on your statement, but in a lot of uh, instances with risky behaviors, which many, there are many kinds of risky behaviors we all engage in, we all get in cars, being in a car is risky, right? Um, but also with substances, there are a lot of uh, different risks depending on the substances, but being able to listen to a client explain uh, how a substance has been helpful, potentially in short-term situations, 
um, can be really validating and help a client feel more open to also talking about the, the long-term consequences that they are trying to work on, right? All right, so the final uh, just concept I wanna talk about when it comes to persistent and committed engagement is really this uh, shared decision-making method for, uh, for helping our clients to feel fully engaged and informed about what's going to happen in the treatment, or if you don't call it treatment in your relationship and you're helping relationship and your work together and your, um, let me know if there are preferred ways of describing that in the chat, would love to hear alternate alternatives. Um, but we want to help our clients make decisions. Um, and the way we help is we help them feel informed, fully informed about the decisions that they're making. And we help them also specify these different aspects. So you could ask or look out for what's important to your client. What are their goals? What are your goals? You know, uh, getting clear on your own goals, separate from your client, can be helpful because we want to differentiate between our own agenda and our client's agenda and try to be as much as possible on our client's agenda um, because that's how things get done, are uh, more successful when our client feels like part of the process and feels honored in their, uh, and acknowledged for their expertise and their decision, their autonomy, their power to make decisions. Like they don't, we don't need to approve of them, right? They can do, them anyway. So um, really uh, helping our clients to, so uh, understanding what our goals are and maybe trying to put those aside and focus on our clients or maybe find where our goals overlap. Like we want our client to uh, have a better, mm, I can't think of one off the top of my head at this moment, but uh, Oh, well, we can use substance use. That's always an easy one. Our goal might be, we want our client to be abstinent, right? That's how they will get better and they won't have to deal with all the uh, consequences of substance use. Their goal might have nothing to do with substance use. It might be to get back in touch with their daughter or something, right? And so if our goals and their goals are completely different, then we're not going to be able to get them all over to our goal, we want to focus on their goals and then maybe check our own and see if there's a different uh, opportunity in there that isn't so much us feeling that we know better for our client than they know themselves. So really uh, kind of figuring out what those goals are. You're saying in the chat, some clients like their space are afraid of formal language, prefer a more relaxed style of communication. Beautiful. Yes. Thank you so much for um, for uh, like adding more context to that. So you were saying, ask about their boundaries when it comes to communication styles, because some people like their space might not uh, in, enjoy formal language, prefer a relaxed style of communication for sure. Yeah. Um, matching the way we communicate to our clients with how they feel comfortable is super helpful in engagement, right? It helps that power balance differential I was talking about before too. Um, and so when we're 
So when I was working on treatment plans, this is how I thought about objectives and interventions because I always got confused. So this is my shortcut way. As I said before, I love a shortcut. But um, so once we've considered what our goals are, what our clients' goals are, and figured out how to hone in on our clients' goals, um, we also want to identify how our clients are going to make movement towards those goals, right? So that's our objectives. What is our client going to do between now and the next time we meet? And then how will you take action to achieve them? So what is under your purview that you can do? Maybe contact that resource or download that information or schedule that appointment or, you know, call Medi-Cal. I don't know. Something that you're going to be doing. Um, and so this makes it a team effort. You're working with your client. Um, you're honing in on their goals. Um, and finding a way that both of you can be participating in the process going forward. So we are pretty much done here today with our training. Uh, I wanna leave you with this quote that I find powerful um, from Anthony Ruffin again, gotta believe in them or they won't believe in you. Uh, if you've ever felt like, maybe the distress and the worry kind of took you out of feeling the hope for our client, your client. That's a normal reaction to this work. It's a, it's a sign of like burnout and vicarious trauma. All these things can make it really hard to believe in our clients when we see negative outcomes, when we uh, experience trauma vicariously. And it is helpful for us to work, continue to do this work, to work on believing in them and, and figuring out when, noticing when we don't and uh, reminding ourselves that there's so much strength and resilience in our clients that is easy to ignore when we're distracted by the challenges. But they've made it this far. Um, they've, they have what it takes to make it to this point in their lives. And, uh, if we can believe in them, then they may be more able to believe in us as being helpful in their journey. <laughs>